Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Isn't that right? Thanks, guys, for leading us in song. Let's pray. Lord, we just sang to you. We need you every hour. The entire world screams against that truth because the world tells us, no, we need money. We need friends. We need this. We need that. We need protection. But Father, we thank you that you are the one that sent your son. And Lord Jesus, you are the one that we need. And so by your spirit, I pray now that you'll open up this word to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged. Help us, Lord, to be equipped that we might indeed understand what we need to be doing and how we need to be responding to what the world's siren song is all about. Because, Lord, the resurrection is is incredible. The resurrection is necessary about what you are going to do, what's on your agenda, Lord. So we're going to give you thanks. We'll give you praise. Help, Help us to understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I want to ask and answer a question. And the question is included in the title of the message today. Is the death of Christ enough to save us? Now, how often do we hear the gospel go something like this? I'm a sinner. Christ is the Savior. Christ hung on the cross and died for my sin. So if I trust Christ as my Lord and Savior then I'm saved. But following this line of reasoning, is the death of Christ enough to save me? Now, I'm reminded of a song written by Elijah, or Eliza Hewitt, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. Maybe you've heard that song before. I know that you've heard the chorus, and it goes something like this. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Well, we're going to return to the question a little bit later. And we're going to see Paul's answer to this question because the answer is found in this passage. And so, stay awake, and you'll probably hear the answer. You'll probably discover the answer that Paul gives to this even before we get to the end of the message. But last time we were in 1 Corinthians, we talked about the very heart of Christianity. It's what unifies all Christians. It is what can cure and what does and what will cure all the world's ills. It sets the record straight. It restores the world to where it was before sin entered it. What is that? It's the gospel. Paul told the Corinthians that he gave them what was of primary importance. This information of the first order of magnitude, he said. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to many. Now, one thing I would say in addition, now, don't get me wrong, I'm not adding to the gospel, okay? I'm saying some other things, some comprehensive statements here about the gospel itself. See, because the gospel is more comprehensive than just the death, the burial, and resurrection and appearances of Christ as the heart of this gospel is. But I believe there's a front side and a back side 
to this gospel, almost like covers of a book. And it's found literally at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his own preaching we're talking about here. As we know very well, Jesus himself preached the gospel. But what did he mean when he preached the gospel? Did he preach to the masses of his own death, burial, resurrection, and appearances? Well, now, there was a time when he did teach this, but he didn't begin this way. Because I'm, I'm convinced that when Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, they were not hearing things like, oh, okay, in a couple of years, Jesus is going to die for my sins and rise again from the dead. They didn't hear this. There was something else that was in the mind and heart of Jesus and the words of Jesus and that they understood. Now, again, there was a time that Jesus did teach his death, his burial, his resurrection, yes. But when was that? It was later on in his ministry. When did he first introduce this thing? It was when Jesus asked the disciples who they thought he was. Remember what Peter said? He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus told him in Matthew 16, 17, he says, blessed are you, sign of Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father revealed this to you. And it was after this, after that statement, that Jesus then began to predict his rejection, his torture, his death, and his resurrection. But how did Peter respond to these things that Jesus just told him about? He rebuked Jesus. Now, can you imagine rebuking Jesus? I don't know about you, but I don't think I could do that. At least you got to hand it to Peter, right? But what did Peter, but what did Jesus do in response to Peter's rebuke? He rebuked Peter. And what did he call him? Satan. That's a pretty strong rebuke, wouldn't you think? But my point here is that there was something else that Jesus was meaning. There was some other point that Jesus was making when he was preaching the gospel. Because the gospel was not original with Jesus. Did you know that? He didn't make this up. This was not an original thing with him. Jesus was actually quoting and referring to Scripture. We would call that the Old Testament. Specifically in Isaiah 52, verses 10 and 11. And here's what it says. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's gospel. Good news who brings good news of happiness, who publishes peace, who publishes salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's the gospel. That's the good news that Jesus was talking about. In verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's the gospel that Jesus was talking about. That's the gospel that he meant when he was preaching to them. But you know what this means, my friends? That the precious gospel, as Paul presented it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, also includes not just the death, burial, resurrection, and the appearances of Jesus, it also includes the reign of Jesus as king. And we're going to see this in our passage today as Paul lays out this truth before the Corinthians. We're going to be able to feast our souls on this eternal universal truth. 
But as Paul had to do so many times with the Corinthians, he had a lot of hard work to do to get the Corinthians to the place where he could actually help them to understand the truth. And so in verses 12 to 19, we're going to see Paul point out here the absurd logic of the no resurrection idea. And then in verses 20 to 28, the apostle is going to tell the Corinthians and us the truth about the resurrection and lay it out in logical fashion. And then finally, Paul will show the Corinthians how practical the hope of the resurrection is in verses 29 to 34. And so let's see Paul put down the absurd logic of the no resurrection idea again in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. So if you don't have your Bible open, please open it now. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. Are you following this so far? Are you following the logic? For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. Again, he's repeating this. It's important for them to understand this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Think about the implications of no resurrection here. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, who have died, have perished also. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And what I find it tragically fascinating here is why Paul had to address this in the first place. That there were some attached to the Corinthian church who actually denied the truth of the resurrection. They would tell you this, something like this. If we were able to be transported back to the first century, talk to the Corinthians attached to the church, We would hear some of them say something like this. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I believe that he died for my sins. But this resurrection thing, not so much. I really don't believe that. But I believe he died for my sins. But I believe that he's the Son of God. Now, in our day, if we were to hear someone say that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for our sins and he died for this person's sins, Would we probe further? What do you mean by that? What else do you mean by this? Or would we just conclude that this person is a Christian? And my guess is that more than likely, we just conclude he's a Christian. But I believe there's an implicit warning here. We cannot say that a person who does good things and believes only part of the truth of the gospel and denies other parts of the gospel is a Christian. It is not enough to believe in the existence of Jesus. Did you know that? It's not enough. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, even, as an inferior creation of God, as if God created Jesus and then everything else was created through Jesus. And there are some people who believe that. There are major religions who believe this. It's not enough to just follow WWJD. You remember those 
Remember that uh, acronym? What would Jesus do? No, we need to believe in all of who Jesus claimed to be, and we must respond in the way that Jesus told us to respond. We must fully trust in everything that the Scripture told us about Jesus. And then we are to respond in the way he told us to respond, that we must repent and believe the gospel in order to be saved. But let's look now at how decisively Paul dealt with the resurrection deniers. First, he says, if there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. And besides denying the historical fact of this, Paul is going to address how crucial it is for Christians to believe. And we're we're going to see this a little bit later on. So we're going to return this in a minute. But second, if Christ is not alive from the dead right now, then the fact that they preached and the fact that the Corinthians believed the object of their faith was empty. It was meaningless. It meant nothing. Paul basically says that if you only believe in some buried prophet, even if he calls himself the Son of God, then your faith has no real object. This is serious stuff. Third, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then Paul and company can rightly be accused of bearing false witness against God because they proclaim that it was God who raised Jesus from the dead. And fourth, If God had not raised Christ from the dead, and let me remind us that it was the bodily resurrection, not just a spiritual resurrection, that a lot of people really do believe. See, a lot of people believe that Christ didn't rise bodily from the dead. He just rose spiritually from the dead. And how do we know this? There's a song that goes something like this. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And then that's the idea that so many people have. They don't really care whether Jesus rose again bodily. But Paul says it is a big deal that he rose again bodily. And that if Jesus wasn't raised again bodily, then they have placed their faith in an object that cannot save them. They have not been forgiven of their sins. That's what Paul is saying. If Jesus has not been raised bodily, they haven't been forgiven of their sins. And if they have not been forgiven of the sins. What about those who have gone on before? What about those who they love and have died and they're following Christ? They too have not been forgiven of their sins. They too are eternally lost. They are eternally dead. They are not enjoying the presence of God if Christ has not been raised bodily from the dead. And fifth, if Christ has not been raised, there in reality is nothing but gloom, and eternal destruction on the other side of the grave. Now, if that's the case, and we believe in Christ anyway, then we deserve the pity of the world. In other words, if Christ only gives us a good life in the here and now, and I would say if we have the best life right now, then we deserve the world's pity. It's quite an indictment, don't you think? So let's sum up this very important section of this passage. Without the resurrection of Christ, the object of our faith, Christ, is meaningless, useless. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, God has not forgiven any of us of our sins. After all, 
Also, those who preach the resurrection of Christ can be rightly accused of bearing false witness against God. See, if the dead is not raised, then Christ is still in the ground, is he not? So what, according to Paul, is the golden cord that binds the truths of God's faithfulness and his forgiveness together? It is the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And now we will see the ultimate reason, the ultimate reason for the resurrection of our Lord from the dead in verses 20 to 28. He writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Isn't that a great thing to, to know that death no longer exists? For God has put all things in subjection under his, that is, Christ's feet. But when it says... All things are in subjection. It is plain that that Christ is accepted from this. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, as in the Father, who put all things in subjection under Christ, that God may be all in all. It sounds confusing, but it is a breathtakingly powerful, holy portion of scripture it's amazing here so let's kind of walk through this god begins this by affirming the truth of christ's resurrection you know he laid out the logic the absurd logic of no resurrection before and now he's saying no christ has indeed been raised bodily from the dead and that's the important point he calls this rising from the dead christ rising the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, of course, we know what falling asleep means, right? Not what you, some of you got to do right now, but we're talking about dying, right? But what does Paul mean by first fruits? First fruits in Scripture, as in the Old Testament, is a term of offering. All firstborn animals and the best of the grain of that year belong to God, and the people were to offer them to the Lord. In thanksgiving, for more, a promise of more to come. As one author puts it, the first fruits was a foretaste of more to follow. And so in this case, as Paul told the Corinthians and us that all who die following Christ, all who fall asleep in Christ, will be made alive. In other words, Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of his people. In Christ shall all be made alive to enjoy life forever with the king. The only reason why we can live forever is because Christ was resurrected from the dead. However, Paul says, there is a certain order. There is a certain timing to all of this. Let's look again at verse 23. Christ the firstfruits, which already happened, right, 2,000 years ago, 
And then later on, those who belong to Christ will be made alive. Because Christ was raised bodily from the dead. When Christ returns, then we who belong to Christ will be raised from the grave. Now, in our way of saying it, people who die as Christians will be bodily raised from the tombs or from the sea or from the ashes, wherever, if been cremated, right? And then our spirit will be reunited with our bodies perfectly, be a perfect body when Christ comes back. And that is called glorification. Isn't that an amazing thing? Because Christ was raised, we shall be raised too. But that's not all. Far from it. As great as it is that we're going to be raised, there's something far more significant as to why Christ was raised from the dead. See, when he returns, he's going to destroy his enemies, every one of them. Listen again to how John sees Christ return. I have the passages on the screen if you want to look. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That's Jesus, the resurrected one. And the armies in heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which with he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a cloud, with a loud voice as he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the flesh of their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. Hallelujah! That burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And when Christ is seated on his throne in Jerusalem, what next? What's going to happen? Well, let's let the psalmist tell us. Psalm 2, verses 7 to 12, he says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. If he's saying that to the kings and the leaders, what about everybody else? Kiss the sun, as in kiss the feet 
of the Son in homage and worship, lest he be angry and you be perishing in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And then verses 5 and 6, we read, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. This is our gentle Jesus, by the way. He will shatter chiefs over the entire earth. And this will go on for a thousand years. Perfect justice on the earth. Imagine this. No more Marxist regimes. No more fake news. No more abortions. Men will be men and women will be women. And imagine that. Isn't that a great society to live in? And the moment that the people rebel, they will become the enemies of Jesus. And he will dash them to pieces. This is what's going to happen. When I live in the millennium, I want to be Jesus' friend, don't you? And John writes, But when a thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. They're going to attack us. But fire came down from heaven and consumed the enemies. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown alive into the lake of fire. Hallelujah. And suffer where the, burst, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who is seated on it. This is Jesus. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Can you imagine? No wonder the psalmist writes, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Again, this is Jesus we're talking about here. The one who healed the sick, the one who touched the lepers. This is Jesus in all of his glory. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The Lord Jesus resurrected from the dead, will return to judge and rule the nations. He will subdue all of his enemies under his feet, physical enemies and spiritual ones, and death 
which will be the last enemy. Then he will offer up the kingdom, as in the entire planet, the entire world, up to the Father. And then in verse 28, Paul writes that Jesus himself will be subjected to the Father so that God may be all in all. So here's the foundation point that Paul is making here. Bodily resurrection is an absolute necessity. Because if there is no resurrection, what else isn't there? There's no millennial reign of Christ. There is no subduing of nations. There is no final judgment. And there, if there is no final judgment, there is no final justice on the earth. But how can that be if one of God's attributes is perfect justice? No, there must be a resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits of that. So what can we say about this? What can you say about this? What can I? Hallelujah, if we are part of this, if we're part of God's forever family. But if you're not one of his, if you're not part of God's forever family, tragically, you are and you will be one of his enemies. Don't be an enemy of Jesus. He will be glorified in his saints or he will be glorified in the exercise of his perfect justice. Finally, let's take a look at how practical the hope of the teaching, the doctrine of the resurrection is in 29 to 34, verses 29 to 34. He says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If, we, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So in verse 29, we come across a very peculiar notion, idea. Baptism for the dead. What's that all about? It's a pagan practice, and it was done also by what we would call cults in the second century. And it's even done by Mormons today. Did you know that? Mormons baptized for the dead. You may have heard that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has the largest genealogy data bank in the world. Why do they do that? Because of this very thing right here. So they can actually practice baptism for the dead, hoping that those that baptize will be able to get eternal life. Now, wouldn't things just be better if they would repent, <laughs> believe the gospel, and become true Christians? It would be great. But Paul's point here is that resurrection is something even pagans believe in. So why would he baptize for the dead if resurrection was not true? Paul's own testimony of hope and the resurrection speaks of this in his own life. In verses 30 and 31, he says, in effect, that putting on his temporal physical life now is no big deal, no matter what happens to him in this temporal life, because the resurrection of his body is a future reality. And on that side of the grave, there is no more death. 
And so Paul would say something like this, regardless of what happens to me, it is nothing that compares to what awaits me on the other side. And if Paul were to somehow visit us, besides freaking us out, I'm sure that he would say something about COVID. And I'm sure he would say something about Marxist uprising in our country. And I can imagine him telling us to stay the course, live righteously. We're not to fear COVID. We're not to fear the Black Lives Matter movement because a resurrection is coming that death will no longer be a thing at all anymore. We're not to fear what anybody can do to our bodies. We're only to fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell, as Jesus told us in Matthew 10, 28. That's one of the reasons why Paul was so fearless. That's one of the reasons why he was able to be a servant to those even who were not so nice to him. But now look at how Paul made it personal to the Corinthians at the end of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, he says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Indeed, if we're only worm food after we flatline, and we're placed into the ground, then it would be a crying shame, wouldn't it, to not live life to the fullest and to engage in anything and everything that the world has to offer. But what kind of enjoyment, in air quotes, does the world have to offer that does not clash with God-given guilt? See, the fact is, as John tells us, the world lies in the lap of the evil one. And that is the warning that Paul puts out in 1 Corinthians verses 33 and 34. He gives us good godly advice here. He says, indeed, we will become like those that we choose to hang around with. Isn't that true? Some Corinthian churchgoers need to morally wake up, he says, for they are living life drunk on the world. They're staggering around in the house of God. And Paul here reminds the Corinthians that sinning, as a lifestyle, is not how God's people are to live. He told them over and over again that those who practice sinning demonstrate that even though they're attached to the Corinthian church organization, they are not a part of the church, the ecclesia of Christ. He finishes this section by reinforcing the truth that those who deny the resurrection and those who continue their lifestyles of sin have no knowledge of God. It doesn't mean that they're atheistic. It means something far worse. Remember what Jesus says that eternal life is in John 17, 3. He said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what is knowledge of God? It's eternal life. And what is eternal life? It's knowledge of God. It's the same thing. And so when Paul says that some of them have have no knowledge of God, it's another way of saying that Corinthians, Corinthian churchgoers, come to Christ, get saved. So what do we do with this glorious, most sobering passage of Scripture? First, we've got to be convinced that the teaching of the resurrection is a thing. It's true. It's real. It is, it is the heart of the gospel. It's part of that. It's a gospel issue. It was believed from the earliest days. You knew that, right? And all throughout church history, Christians have crystallized what they believed into these, what we would call creedal statements or statements of faith. Now, we at Grace United, we got a statement of faith, don't we? Those who are members, we know this. But it's the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And if I were to have us all recite it at once, it takes about 15 minutes to do it. 
because it's a long and drawn out thing. But not back then. One of the earliest statements of faith is called the Apostles' Creed. And we usually begin with a corporate prayer every Sunday. But I wanted to reserve us doing something corporately to recite the Apostles' Creed, to let us know and to remind us what the Apostles' Creed and what the people from the very earliest days of the church believed. And so let's pull this out. It's on the screen as well. I've modernized it a little bit so that we can kind of kind of update it so we can kind of understand it because, you know, we don't uh, speak old English nowadays. So let's go ahead and, and recite together the Apostles' Creed, again, to remind us about resurrection and see if you can see resurrection in here. Let's read it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. The earliest Christians believed that 2,000 years ago. And if they believed it, I think it's a good idea for us to believe it too, don't you think? Second, let's answer the question I posed at the beginning. Is the death of Christ enough to save us? No. If if Christ only died, where would our sins be? They would be unforgiven. It requires the resurrection of Christ also to forgive us of our sins. And why is that? See, if if Christ was still in the grave, what would be more powerful? Would it be death or would it be Christ? Be death, of course. And why did Christ die? For our sins. So if Christ is still in the grave, then what's more powerful? Sin. Sin. If Christ is still in the ground, then all hope of overcoming death, all hope of having our sins forgiven is still in the ground. But Christ is alive. He's been raised. But because he has been raised, sin is not our ultimate enemy. Christ has defeated death. He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We have true hope for life hereafter and the power to live life pleasing to God in the here and now. Can we say praise the Lord for this? It's wonderful. Third, in light of who Christ is, let's spend a moment or two in prayer. He's the one who conquered death. He is the soon coming king. He will rule all nations with perfect justice and righteousness as he reigns for a thousand years. And then he will sit on his great white throne and we will all give an account to him on that day. And so I invite us to spend a moment or two thanking the Lord for the salvation that he has offered to us if we have received it. See, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that the Lord is right now in a search and rescue mission. He is seeking and saving the lost. It is His will that no one perish, but that all come to repentance. He holds out His hand and He offers salvation. If you haven't taken it, will you take it? Will you repent of your sin and believe the gospel? Now, I know most of you here. I know your stories. 
But all I know is what you've revealed to me. You know, what is your heart really like? Do you really know Christ? If you don't know Christ, if you really have never repented of your sin and you've really never embraced the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the one who died, the one who rose again, the one who's coming again, I'm going to ask you to do something brave. Even though we all know each other, I'm going to ask you to do something brave. I'm going to ask you to stand. If this is you, if you realize, hey, Jesus is not my Lord and Savior, and I want him to be. I'm accepting the gift that he offers right now. I'm going to ask you to stand. If you stand, then we will be in prayer for you, and we'll be supporting you throughout your new life in Christ. But if not, if Christ is already your Lord and your Savior, let's spend a moment just thanking him for what he's given us. So let's go to the Lord now. And Lord, I want to thank you for the salvation that you've given me. I want to thank you, Lord, that you held out in your mercy and in your grace, your hand. You asked me to take it. You asked me to take salvation from you. Lord, you initiated it. I responded. And all of us in this room, Lord, who have indeed done that, then we know you. And you know us. And that's the most important thing, Lord. Lord, you're going to tell many people on the day that we stand before you. I never knew you. And therein lies the problem. Well, there are a lot of people who are going to tell you on that day, Lord, I know you. But you're going to tell them, I don't know you. Depart from me. And who has the authority here? Lord, one day you're going to have everyone stand before you and you're going to divide the nations as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You're going to put the goats on, on your left, put the sheep on your right, you can tell the goats, depart from me. I never knew you. Lord, thank you for being willing to go to the cross. Thank you for taking upon yourself all of our sin. The sin of, of every person who's ever lived upon yourself. And you said it's finished. Lord, we praise you for the salvation that's found in you and in you alone. And Lord, for the, my brothers and sisters in this room and for those who are, who are tuning in on Facebook, Lord, I pray for all of us that today, right now, that we can call you friend, that you can call us friend, that we can call you Lord, and we can say that we know you, and you can tell us, I know you, and we can live a life that is pleasing to you because of the power that you've given us, the power that raised you, Lord Jesus, from the dead, lives within every one of us who know you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming to live within our lives. I pray, Father, that you will help us to take this gift that you've given us, this gift of salvation, 
And that out of gratitude that we will leave this place. And that we will let the world know by the way that we live, by the way that we, by the way that we speak, by our attitudes, by our inclinations, by our orientations, everything about us, Lord. May it scream out, shout loudly that we are part of the body of Christ. That Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. That Jesus who died and rose again and the one who is ascended to the Father is the soon coming King. King of kings, Lord of lords. And as we saw today in your word, when you come back, you're going to set up as King. It's not going to be all smiles with so many. Lord, you are going to destroy your enemies. And we praise you for this. Lord, you're not going to be nice when you come back. Make us, Lord, ready, please. Help us, please, in the meantime, to give you the praise, the glory, the honor that you alone deserve by the way that we live, Lord. Not just here. Not just at Grace United, not just in this place right now. But Lord, when we leave, may everyone know that you are our Lord and our Savior. I thank you for this time, Lord. And I pray now, Lord, as we in, in, involve ourselves in the giving, we know, Lord, that we can never outgive you. And we also know, Lord, it takes some money to, to have ministry. And we know, Lord, that you're going to prompt your people to give. Help us, Lord, to give with a heart that's full and overflowing, full of gratitude for what you've done for us. I pray, Father, you help us to take the monies that are entrusted to us and that we will use them in a way that will be pleasing and glorifying to you. Help us, Lord, to sing with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength because we love you because you loved us first. In Jesus' name.